0: case that I have on here for today. Um, I have Edwin Clark Rogers in here and I'm just saying his name outright because we've actually talked about this guy before. He came up in a number of different ways. He came up in two specific series that we did. The first time he comes up is in um, the Israel keys case. And then he comes up later in where we, we, that was in the Texas episodes. And then when we revisited that area, To talk about Dennis, he comes up in the course of that. So he's in NamUs as of June 8, 2012. He's uh, missing person number 14948. He goes missing out of Liberty County, Texas. Uh, The area is specifically called uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. He was 62 years old when he m- went missing on December 25th, 2011, but that date gets stretched here in a minute. We'll talk about why. Texas DPS has him. Local Justice of the Peace still puts out posters about him. Uh, Edwin Clark Rogers was a Caucasian male. He was five foot three to five foot six inches tall and weighed between 190 and 230 pounds. He had brown, thinning hair uh, that had some gray in it and he wore a mustache he had blue eyes and when he was last seen it's thought that he would have been wearing uh, work clothing uh, and cowboy boots there's no notations for jewelry or uh, whether or not he had glasses he does have a charlie project entry texas department of public safety has him The Houston Chronicle ran a couple of articles about him as it clicked to Houston. There's something in the Vindicator about him. I can't remember what that was about. And when I pull him up and sort of go uh, look at the, the Charlie Project profile, I get a couple of variations here. It does say he takes medication for unspecified reasons, but the medicine was left behind. He has some kind of problems with his feet and he can't walk very far they list him as five feet, five, 200 pounds. It references that he is missing all but three of his teeth and he has surgical scars on his chest and his back. They have a photo on here where his, so when I picture a mustache, they have a DMV photo and the mustache is just like to the corners of his mouth. But there's a 2011 picture of him That shows his mustache as being like a wraparound mustache. Like it goes all the way down to his chin. Kind of some different looks he's got. Now here's what uh, they they do mention on Charlie Project. He may go by his middle name, Clark. Here's what uh, Charlie Project puts in. Edwin Clark Rogers was last seen in Liberty, Texas on December 30th, 2011. So already we have a date discrepancy between the 25th and the 30th. He spoke to his brother and his son on the phone at 1140 p.m asking if they'd like to go with him to the VFW Hall, which is the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall. They said no. Rogers was last seen leaving the VFW Hall, and he's never been heard from again. The following day, Rogers' stepson and his wife saw his green 1998 uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee On the side of Texas 231, near County Road 2243. So that would be between Cleveland, Texas and Tarkington Prairie. They didn't think of it as the time, but as days passed and the Jeep remained in the same location, his stepson became concerned and spoke to his mother about it. His wife went to the Jeep and put a rock under the tire to see if it was moved. She found his cell phone and his medication inside. His stepdaughter reports him missing on January the 6th. So I think that's the time we're dealing with here. He goes missing between the 25th and January the 6th on a technical basis, but realistically nobody sees him after he leaves the VFW hall either December the 30th or going into December the 31st. At the time of his disappearance, Rogers was separated from his wife and they were arguing Because of issues with his feet stemming from something to do with his military service in the Vietnam War, his family doesn't believe he could have left on foot. The jeep was his only method of transportation, and it's completely uncharacteristic of him to leave without warning. His case remains unsolved you know, this is a weird one for me. And because of that, I threw him on my keys list a long time ago and I never made the timeline work out to make it make any sense. So I-
1: he's one of the three grown men who basically disappeared in this, I believe it was maybe 20 mile radius from one yeah. another.
0: Yeah, it and was all like, at the same time. And yeah.
1: it, it was within like a 12-week time span or something like I mean, it was a very short period of time in this 20-mile radius that three men essentially uh, went missing, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's Edwin Rogers. He goes missing here. He's reported January 6th. So if... You know, give or take 10 days either way. Mark Reinberger goes missing February 15th, 2012. And Dennis Rogers goes missing March 8th, 2012. Those are the guys. It's it's less than 20 miles.
1: Are Dennis and Edwin related? No. Okay. David Rogers is Edwin. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) That was that. Okay. So, and so that was this whole thing, right? And so... Uh, to my knowledge, this series of events has not been repeated in this area, right?
0: No, it hasn't. And we have uh, we have covered this. If people want to go back and listen to the Texas episodes, we talk about these guys a lot.
1: Right. And so I can't really tell because Clark Rogers was separated at the time and I assume his children were grown and then um, like they didn't live with him, right? Uh, I don't know that for certain, but because he said he like had talked to his dad, I assume that that means on the phone, right?
0: Yeah, that's Uh, what I, that's the impression I got.
1: And then, okay, so his, his vehicle, so he goes to the VFW hall on the last day he's seen, right? Yeah. And he leaves, and then the next thing that's noted is his family, like seeing his, Jeep Cherokee randomly spotted uh, on the side of the road, and it's like a mi- it's within like a mile from his house, right?
0: Yeah, it's really at close. First,
1: at first, you know, they're like, "Oh, there's you know stepdad's Jeep," right? But then, as it continues to be there, it's weird. His his stepdaughter does report him missing, and you know his something was. I don't know if you mentioned it. Uh, His wife did something to check to see if the car moved or whatever.
0: She put a rock. Yeah. She put a rock there. And
1: I assume it remained. And so the thought was like, okay, what's his vehicle doing on the side of the road like this, right? Why didn't he go ahead and go home? He couldn't walk. He had injuries and issues and everything else. And really, I don't know what to make of any of that. It's such a strange situation. Uh, they don't really mention if um, his 1998, jeep grand cherokee had any sort of mechanical issue right
0: yeah they haven't brought that up
1: and so you know if it has a mechanical issue if it had been rendered undrivable for whatever reason you know that would explain why he parked it like less than a mile from his house and he's not with it but other than that like i don't see I, i have a hard time imagining why he would stop his vehicle I don't have you thought of anything? I don't know why he would, um, at that point stop and park as opposed to, you know, just continuing on home.
0: I've never made sense of this case.
1: Okay. And to me, uh, it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, the significant other, because it sounds to me like she was already apart from him. Right. And a lot of times you have less, there's less suspicion. Unless there's some underlying or overlying issues that aren't mentioned, right? Because right. um, once you're kind of free of somebody, it it's not going to be like a crime of passion where somebody is killed, right? If, if you've got to drive over to their house. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, anyway, I don't know. Uh, I kind of think to myself, well, I wonder if he just like walked off, right? But it still seems odd he would have driven a mile away from his house to then walk off.
0: Yeah. You know, this is one of the strangest, like you can find all kinds of clusters in Texas. Uh, We've looked at them. You and I have looked at them for years with with a variety of different reasons. This one is one I've never been able to figure out. It's, it's sort of, (laughs) it's weird. If, if you go to, a number of different websites. You can read about the clusters that happen in Texas. Now this is about an hour and a half away from where James Tidwell went missing in February. So it's too far for that to be considered part of this cluster. But if you look at this area, Cleveland, Texas, this is unusual in that it's three men.
1: I think this would be unusual in the time span and proximity anywhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it, uh, and there's actually, I think I, I think I tracked down two other missing men in this area, but it doesn't take place in the same time span. So that's important to like sort of point that out. I, you know, I've read a lot about, uh, this case over the years. And I do know that investigators, they seem to be on a particular path. And, for some reason, they never do anything more with the path that they take. They um, they end up digging up part of the yard at his house. Now,
1: Right, there was a depression in the ground.
0: Yeah, and they pretty much, like, they didn't quite say, like, we think the family did something to him. But they didn't clear them. They just say they didn't find anything when they go digging. In this area down here in Liberty County, there are a couple of, you know, unidentified remains. Most of the remains they've they've come across, I think, have been identified there and and ruled out. I don't know if Larry Baker is still missing from this area, but he was on my list at one point. Uh, You know, this is a little after Christmas. And it still fits in with the missing persons cases that, we've been like looking to cover. Do you remember the Larry Baker case or no? Cause it's,
1: uh, I don't know actually.
0: He's from January of 2010. So he, he's about a year ahead of this. He's a, he's also, he, he's a guy, uh, January 2010. He's a guy that's a, a, you know, he's a little older at the time. I think he was 54, 55. He walked out on his porch and nobody ever saw him again.
1: Oh yeah, I remember that his sister. Um, he lived with his sister.
0: Yeah, he, I think he went by a different name, maybe uh, maybe Jake or something like that. But his name was Larry Baker.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I it, vaguely remember.
0: He's real close to these guys as well, like in t- in terms of like uh, time. So what's interesting about that happening?
1: He's like a year earlier.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's in January of 2010.
1: Okay, so he's not like within the. It's like- not.
0: No, he's not. He, week
1: period he's two
0: years. He's two years earlier than the twelve week period. The twelve week period takes place technically in, in January of two thousand twelve. It expands out a little bit into December and then a little bit forward into March. But the twelve week period occurs in two thousand twelve. This guy goes missing two years earlier in January of twenty ten. But my point with that is this: it's a very small area, and a lot of missing person searches get done here. So Edwin Rogers, they dig for him, they do quite a few searches, and then with Dennis, Dennis goes missing on a walk, so they do more searches, same area. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you were, like...
1: You're saying they should be found, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, that's where I'm headed with this. Like, we've talked about this before, like, where somebody will go searching for one missing person and find five others. So...
1: well, But that's not what's happened, Right.
0: No, they haven't found anybody.
1: Right. And I, so I had looked at some point and I believe it had to do with the trio, I think. And my impression with like every single one of them was, were they, were they all in their fifties? Is that right?
0: They were, let's see. So Edwin Rogers, he was 62. Okay. So at least 50 is what I mean. Mark Reinberger's younger.
1: But he had a grown daughter, didn't he? So let's uh,
0: When he goes missing, he was, I think he's in his
1: third. So it was his, uh, okay, so he disappeared on his 39th birthday. That's yeah. what it was. Okay, that, so. So he's the but, one where there
0: was the standoff and all the gun parts.
1: Oh, but, oh, wait, I'm thinking of the wrong person, I think.
0: Were you thinking of Dennis? I think so. So Dennis Rogers, what 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 were you misconstruing there? I can probably help.
1: Dennis was in his fifties, and he's the one who had the uh, a brain injury.
0: Correct. He was fifty-four. Okay. So yeah. he's fifty-four. Mark is thirty-nine. But still, thirty-nine to sixty-two is not as long. That's not as big a stretch. Yeah, but there was
1: nothing wrong with Mark, right? He
0: didn't um, have
1: any contributing
0: factors to. Depends on your definition of contributing factors. He is. A so traumatic Mark,
1: brain injury, dementia. Um,
0: Mark, yeah. I believe Mark had some potential issues that might've led to paranoia. I don't, I, I want to say it's potentially drug related.
1: Okay. So I, I confused Mark and Dennis uh, in my head, but my point I think is what I was getting at was, so I I feel like, I feel like Larry Baker is, I mean, he is nearby and it is a small area, but he is substantially at a different
0: time, right? He's an outlier two years earlier. Yeah.
1: And so I, you know, I can't really take, I mean, I took it into consideration at some point, but he had things like early stages of dementia,
0: right? That sounds and, right, yeah.
1: And he was having, like, some other issues that – it led me to – to it led me away from foul play, right? Gotcha, yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, I could be wrong at any point in time. It uh, – I feel like Clark Rogers – like, he didn't park his car at home, and then he just wasn't at home anymore. Like – There was like an extra step there, which to me, there's got to be some sort of explanation unless the explanation is like somebody wanted uh, was concocting a story, right?
0: It's not a great story, though. Why would you leave it that close to your own house?
1: It's not a great story, but so we know he went home because his medication and cell phone were at home, right? That's what they said. And so... You think about it and you're like, well, he drove, you know, back up the road. Well, what was he going to do without his... Well, I mean, it was... Well, 2011, people had their cell phones, but his was at home, right? Yeah. And so you're you're right. It's not a good story, but it's still enough to like... I mean, we're in 2023 now and like nothing's come of it, right? Yeah. It was enough to sort of throw off the situation. And so... It's almost like the the Jeep Grand Cherokee being up the road, it makes it seem like uh, effort was made to make it look like he had walked off, right? Yeah, but at the same time, not making a whole lot of sense. As to, I mean, I don't know. What if he, like, if somebody were to say, well, yeah, he parked there all the time, he would go down the trail, right? That's a different story, right? That yeah. becomes a whole nother thing. And so we don't really have enough information, but I always look toward, especially men who are separated or divorced or uh, headed that way, or uh, there's certain attributes of men in their fifties, sixties, etc., where you lean away from the significant other because either like it doesn't seem like they're involved or they don't exist, right? Yeah. I always think to myself that it's more than likely... uh,
0: They've harmed themselves.
1: Or they've just wandered off and not come back, whether it's on purpose or not. I I don't know how to even put that. Um, I think that it's possible sometimes that uh guys just wander off and and they don't come back and they die somewhere right yeah uh that's such a weird thing to think about because you're never going to have the opportunity to talk to somebody about it before they do it because more than likely you would never suspect it
0: well it is that time of year though it's holiday time when this guy goes missing it's right after the holidays and that makes me wonder more about it. They don't seem to go real hard at the, the stepson or the estranged wife other I, than the I, digging.
1: Well, and I don't know if they were, I don't know like what the living situation was. Right. I don't know if like, were they living together, but and it doesn't get into really uh, the, it seems like, the thought that they had on, you know, the depression in the backyard was they were satisfied that he wasn't there, right?
0: Yeah.
1: That's an odd thing. That would, I, I don't know. It seems like, you know, the investigators might have an idea of what was going on, but without that, it, you know, the stepdaughter reporting him missing, the stepson mentioning, the situation, um, the mom noticing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to make of any of that.
0: I, you know what? When I think I, I could go anyway on this, and th- these are the cases that they never, they never end up getting off on Key's list. I can't put him down there and make him make sense. But then three guys this quickly. You know, is there somebody else down there that's doing something? And and you just got a like a a, a weird situation. Mark Reinberger is probably not related to it. He he was my most likely keys issue because of like the, the craziness that went down, but he had the most likely alternative outcome to Israel Keys, and that let was me- he had he had gone kind of the wrong direction with some people nearby.
1: Right. So let me ask you, what do you think is more likely? We've got this example here of three guys sort of in the normal, at least from what we can tell, normal course of business disappear, right? Do you think it's more likely that they just disappeared of their own volition, whether it's, you know, on purpose, by accident, misadventure, whatever whatever happens there? Or do you think it would be more likely that it would be, like, somebody like Keys?
0: I mean... (sighs) This area, Dennis Rogers is most likely misadventure. Edwin Rogers has the potential for there to have been a domestic issue or misadventure. Mark Reinberger was running with an interesting crowd at the time and was viewed as possibly being a snitch. So I can explain away all three of them, but no arrests are ever made related to these three that I can tell.
1: Um And... I don't know what the area is like, but as far as what you're saying in the hunt for the bodies or hunt for the people after they've gone missing, it does seem a little odd that all three of them would just, you know, stay missing.
0: And that's why they never leave my predator list because, you know, they've got, I think, eight unidentified bodies and and 11 missing people in this town. Okay, so here's why I say those numbers. First of all, those are kind of similar. Why haven't they made some more matches? But second of all, that's 19 people unaccounted for here. In Liberty County, Texas.
1: Over how long?
0: If you, well, I don't, like, I, I think if you go back, the oldest case in Texas might have been, uh, in Liberty, Texas, would have been maybe the 90s. Okay. And then they have a current case. But that current case is going to wrap itself up, and it's not good. Like it, it's there's some craziness going on with the current.
1: Well, case. and so okay, how are you interpreting that? The 19 people missing in Liberty County. Like how how are you? Um,
0: okay, so here's what you've got going on there, um, with 19 people either unidentified and deceased or missing, in a county that doesn't have a lot of people, maybe 85,000 people.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people, but is it the vastness of the area? Is it some sort of?
0: I think it um ultimately is. I think ultimately like Dennis Rogers goes wandering off. He's in a swampy area. He's in contact with a phone that's dying with his daughter who watches after him. I think we know what happened to him. The likelihood of him being snatched by a predator on top of all that is a statistical improbability.
1: Right, but it also is weird that they can't find him.
0: Correct. And they did a lot of searching for him, and that area got clear-cut between the time he went missing and now in a way that if he was in there, he should have been found.
1: Right, and to me, that suggests that after his last pinpointed location maybe he wandered more or something i feel like uh his situation is probably just a a tragedy right where he just got turned around
0: and honestly with this one with edwin i i lean domestic and i'll say it this way that doesn't necessarily mean that someone killed him it could mean he grew despondent and because of his despondence, he either accidentally or on purpose did something to himself.
1: I feel like having uh, called a couple of people up to go out with him for dinner and, you know, they weren't available. And then with all the other stuff, whatever was going on, he was separated. I think that it's possible. Like, you could just be like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this crap anymore. That's a little extreme, right?
0: Well, it doesn't necessarily mean he did something to himself.
1: It could have just been been he took a long walk.
0: He took a real long walk, and the long walk didn't go so well.
1: And see, I I don't know. This is something I've come up with. Um, It's probably a whole thing. I don't know. I've never looked into it. It's depressing. But I think that, like, there are cases where – uh, you know, you perish by omission, right? Like you you don't drink and eat and you're in a uh, isolated state yeah. and you die, right? And what, I mean, do they realize they're dying? I don't know. I don't know, but I can imagine it would actually be kind of peaceful, right? Uh, to just sort of, you know, be on your own. And the other thing is like, I wonder if, uh, if it was really cold.
0: I looked at the temperatures for, for which one? For, um,
1: well, just for, uh, for Clark Rogers. Cause that's okay. really who we're talking about today.
0: Really. Okay. So for Clark Rogers and we're just, so I have to kind of focus around December 30th, give or take. And I, I went back and I looked. And so here's what we have in December, 2011, kind of overall. The uh, the bulk of the weather issues that they have going on are uh, this is out of uh, this is the, out of the closest airport by the way it's uh, George Bush uh, Airport is down there they had a little bit of precipitation less than point 0.1%. now the the week that we're talking about because I I don't have a really good unfortunately I don't have a really good day by day observation uh, it. Was a low of fifty seven and a high of seventy five.
1: Yeah, they, so well, you can freeze, to, you can get hypothermia in fifty
0: seven. Yeah, I'm just letting you know, like the the rough idea there. Very little rain or anything.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that that could contribute to somebody taking a really long walk and not returning maybe they you know not necessarily with the intention of never coming back right
0: well he's an older guy with you Eight know
1: problems yeah they, they we, said he couldn't walk very well
0: you know that's the part of this story where i look at it and go all right well then.
1: but doesn't it also make it like less likely that that would be the setup that people who knew him well would use
0: Kind of. Yeah. In a way.
1: They're the ones going, well, he couldn't walk. Why would he be doing this? Right?
0: Well, okay. So the other thing you got to consider is this. You get in. Okay. And, and, you know, this is another weird thing about men going missing. It's a little difficult to dispose of a 200 pound body.
1: I agree. I mean, I hear you on that. I I don't. Uh, I feel like a lot of men that are killed.
0: I think you got to really think through who's digging a hole. To I think they're just found, body
1: found. I think they just find them. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. a lot of uh, men that are just randomly shot or like, that's the method of murder. Like they, they fall and they lay there and you know, the police come.
0: Yeah. It, like, it, like it's his, digging a hole is hard. Digging a hole in Texas is hard. So I, I, you know, I don't know what I look in the back of my mind. I'm thinking the Jeep is real because it's close to his house, and I think if somebody really domestically did something to him, I think he, I think he just wandered off at his house, and like he's either in the woods around it, or, you know, he's done something there that maybe wasn't meant to be permanent.
1: Sure. Right. And and you're right. I I don't know. I don't really know which We don't have enough information to really make it go one way or the other. And uh, unfortunately, I i don't feel like uh, these, these types of cases get very low uh, priority, right? They do. It's, it's unfortunate because they are still missing people.
0: Yeah. He, he is a missing person. And that is the reason that we're talking about it. Otherwise, I would know absolutely nothing about Clark Rogers. I'm going to move away from him. He's a missing person. I, all I can hope is that he eventually comes home for the holidays one way or another. And I have, uh, I have a exoneration for you today. This is a cook County, Illinois exoneration. It uh, has a reported crime date of 2001 and a conviction date of 2005 uh, for demographic purposes, this is a, at the time of the crime, a 41-year-old black male. It's also a murder, but the sentence on the murder is 27 years. Now, the contributing factors to this are false confession, perjury or false accusation, and official misconduct, in addition to inadequate legal defense. And I think this is our first one. Uh There is DNA evidence that contributes to the exoneration here. On July 19th of 2001, the body of 66-year-old Kim Van Vo was found in his apartment in an assisted living facility on the north side of Chicago, Illinois. DeLong Reed, who shared a bathroom with Van Vo, reported a foul odor. The door to the apartment was found double-locked with the deadbolt fastened. When police forced their way in, they found Van Vo's body in the middle of the studio apartment in an advanced state of decomposition. He had been stabbed 11 times. A white towel covered his face and a pink towel covered his legs. Underneath his body was a five-inch steel knife blade with no handle. There were about two dozen hairs recovered. Some of them came from Kim Van Vo's right hand. The apartment was in disarray. There were dresser drawers opened. A stereo cabinet had been pushed away from the wall, but there was no sign of forced entry. The front door had no signs of damage to the door or the frame, and the door to the shared bathroom was latched from the inside of Kim Van Vo's apartment. The keys to the apartment and to Van Vo's car were in the apartment. Swabs were taken of suspected blood found on the inside of a closet door, as well as from a smudge on one of his fish tanks. Detectives Richard Zouley and Timothy Thompson questioned neighbors and building staff. The property manager reported that Ricardo Burns had visited the building earlier that day and spoke to Lester Garner. According to Garner, Burns was looking for 41-year-old resident of the building named Carl Reed. Now, Carl Reed is not related to DeLong Reed, who shared a bathroom with Kim Van Bough but Burns wanted to talk to him about Kim Van Vo's car. Ricardo Burns was later found to be in possession of Kim's car, but claimed that Carl Reed had tried to sell a car to him. The detectives also questioned DeLong Reed. He denied any knowledge of the crime. When the detectives falsely told him that Carl Reed was implicating him in the murder, DeLong said in response that he had seen Carl take items from Van Vaux's apartment prior to the discovery of the body. Another neighbor also claimed to have seen Carl taking items from Van Vaux's apartment. On June 20th of 2001, Carl Reed was taken into custody. He was kept in an interrogation room for at least 55 hours. He was handcuffed to a ring on the wall with only an 18-inch-wide metal bench to sit on or sleep on. He was interrogated off and on for many hours. At the time, Carl was diabetic, and he took medication to prevent seizures, resulting from a traffic accident and a subsequent head injury from an assault. Carl was considered to be learning disabled. In an IQ test conducted years later, it showed him to be in the range of 51 to 59. This is considered to be below the first percentile of the population. Carl had dropped out of school in the ninth grade and he could neither read nor write. In addition, he abused alcohol and he abused drugs. Carl repeatedly denied any knowledge of the crime. He denied ever going into Kim's apartment and Carl allowed the police to search his own apartment. On the the consent form, For the search, he misspelled his own last name as Reeb, R-E-E-B. Police seized a pair of gym shoes and three pairs of shorts, but nothing of evidentiary value was found on any of them. Carl would later say that the detectives threatened him with violence, and eventually they struck him. The detectives fed him details of the crime, and they falsely told him that his fingerprints were found in the apartment. At one point, DeLong Reed was brought in to confront Carl about allegedly implicating DeLong in taking items from Kim ben apartment. Carl insisted that DeLong was lying. He also denied having anything to do with Ricardo Burns acquiring Kim's vehicle. Carl was not given any insulin for his diabetes, and at the same time, the detectives fed him donuts, potato chips, cranberry juice, and Diet Cola. Ultimately, Carl signed a statement that was written out by an assistant Cook County State's attorney. Carl could not read it. He would later say that he thought he was signing his release papers, not a confession. The statement said that Carl had learned that Kim paid young men for sex, and he decided to use that information to rob Kim, The statement further said that when Carl confronted Kim, Kim offered to pay him $400 for sex. When Kim refused to show Carl the money, Carl accused him of, quote, playing games. At that, according to the statement, Kim grabbed Carl's shirt and Carl pushed him away, causing Kim to fall. But Kim held fast to Carl's shirt and Carl fell on top of him. Carl then saw the knife with no handle on the floor. He picked it up, and he stabbed Kim three times. Kim then let go of Carl's shirt. Carl stabbed him again multiple times and then left the apartment. But this confession was contradicted by physical evidence. Carl had no injuries to either of his hands, which was unlikely considering the number of stab wounds and the fact that the knife did not have a handle. Carl was then charged with first-degree murder. Upon his arrival at the Cook County Jail, he was immediately taken to the hospital for dangerously high blood sugar, as well as for mental health treatment. He told the medical personnel he did not know why he was in custody. He was admitted after reporting suicidal ideation, a history of suicide attempts, and auditory hallucinations. Pause there for a second. That's a lot. wait
1: right here. He was having like a medical emergency.
0: Yeah, this is like like an almost, this is torture, not almost torture, it's torture. But it's torture of a very different variety, don't you think? Well, it really
1: is because they were, well, I don't know if they were aware that this was what would happen, right? Um, but anytime you're confining someone like that, uh, and, you know, if you're confining them, you need to be finding out, if you're legally doing it, you need to find out what you need to know about uh, the effects of someone being diabetic and being confined and their blood sugar fluctuating versus someone who doesn't have that problem and being able to articulate when they need food or drink or whatever. Right. It's two completely different things. And so uh, they, I feel like, like if he had suddenly uh, gone into uh like, diabetic shock and died for some reason. I mean, that's, like, manslaughter, right?
0: It would be, but, I mean, the only people to charge are the ones in the room. You know what I mean?
1: Well, right, but I'm I'm just saying, like, it, you know, they did get him to the hospital, but I have a feeling um, most of the interrogation, well, at least it should be considered invalid because uh, he was basically under duress. I would say, like, Maybe not quite the whole time, but at whatever point his blood sugar started fluctuating, he would have been under duress.
0: And let's keep in mind here, we're, we have two other important factors. So one, all of these people, witnesses, victims, suspects so far, are attached to an assisted living facility.
1: Did he not come in?
0: No, he lives here.
1: He, Carl Reed lives there.
0: Yeah, not in the same apartment, but he lives here.
1: Okay. Yeah, he lives okay. in the
0: same building, not in.
1: Okay, yeah, he. It just makes the distinction that Carl and DeLong read while their last names are uh, the same. Are yeah, are the same. They're not related, right?
0: Right, okay. but but Carl is he is a resident of the same assisted living facility as Kim Van Now, just in case people don't know this, this is like this is a place where. People literally have their lives assisted. That's why they call it assisted living. They're being helped with medical conditions. They're being helped with scheduling. They're being helped with typically with their grocery, their diet, their laundry, their like apartment itself is looked after. And. That's the first part that, that everybody I needs to remember. I kind
1: of wonder how um, Kim Van Vu could have ended up in an advanced state of decomposition.
0: I that is that is one of the things that that yes, it is an important factor here. A, addition, in addition to that, this IQ test that goes on later puts Carl in the fifties. So, in a okay. I say that because everything you said is true and I'm not trying to let them off the hook, but there is a strong possibility that communicating with Carl might have a different affect than communicating with an average person. So on the one hand, maybe he's not able to communicate the medical conditions that are going on with him as they're going on. But on the other hand, these are smart police detectives allegedly, and they should know That, like, in my opinion, this is a situation where you're interviewing a child. Does that make sense?
1: I would say that that is not the way they viewed it. But it is the way they should have viewed it. And, uh, yeah, the fact that um, they would have known Carl Reed lived at this assisted living facility, they should have known better. I agree. Yeah,
0: there should have been some level of, like, social worker or someone like once they take someone from the assisted living facility, someone should be identifying what's going on with him.
1: Well, and I think that it would always fall on the responsibility of law enforcement to assess these types of situations. And while I would like for them to be as, uh, assessed objectively, I, I just, I don't think that happens, Right. Um, Because you don't have any – like, if if you're going into custody for an interrogation, which they indicated he was handcuffed and that he was sitting on an 18-inch bar, basically, metal bar, he had absolutely no freedom, right? And so anything he said wasn't going to be taken seriously by the officers. And if they weren't taking into consideration the bigger picture – how could he possibly, even if he was like, you know, unable to convey it, even if he was able to convey it, they would just say, yeah, you're just trying to get out of this, right? I think. And so before it even starts, they should be aware of those types of factors. I I don't know how that works, but um, I feel like it, it would be irresponsible not to have some idea, with every single person that you have confined like that, right?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, look, if you, if you go to a nursing home and you pick someone up and you're taking them away from that nursing home, and I'm using that as a distinction from assisted living, like typically a lot of folks who leave a nursing home need assistance in an ambulance or other mobility assistance, not everyone. But I think that you should ask at any point in time as a, you know, in this case, as a police officer, what should I know? And it doesn't have to be like some big, involved, timely process. It's just, hey, what's going on with this guy as I take him away?
1: Well, sure. And, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know how that works, right? I I just
0: don't. Okay, so uh, moving on to this. So Carl is in the hospital. The Illinois State Police Crime Lab, they start conducting DNA testing on head hairs from the scene of Kim Van Vogt's murder. The first five head hairs they test, they exclude Carl Reed. So they test five more and they also exclude Carl Reed. All 10 were consistent with Kim Van Vogt's hair. A hair root was found and tested also. Excluding Carl Reed. So with the route that they test, they can't seem to match it to Kim Ben vo and they definitely exclude Carl Reed. The gym shoes and the shorts that they had seized with the warrant from Carl Reed's apartment in the assisted living facility were negative for the presence of blood. The knife blade is examined for fingerprints, but no prints could be found that were suitable for any type of comparison. The crime lab does determine that there was blood on the knife blade, but they didn't pursue any DNA testing. In fact, laboratory records revealed a post-it note saying, looks like this guy confessed. Do we really need to process the knife? There was a 2nd posted Post-it note found in the file that said, no, not at this time. In October of 2001, the prosecution, in spite of what we just told you, filed a notice that they were going to seek the death penalty. Nearly four years later, Carl Reed's defense lawyers moved to suppress his statement. They argued that he had not been read his Miranda warnings and that he had been subjected to what they thought were improper interrogation techniques. This hearing lasts multiple days uh, over a period of time. The detectives and other officers denied that they physically or psychologically abused Carl in any way. They testified that he was read and understood his Miranda warning several times. The Prosecutor from Cook County who wrote out Carl Reed's statement, her name was Nancy Gallicini. She testified that when she was finished writing out the statement, she moved so that she and Carl were sitting side by side. And this is her quote from her testimony. I asked him to read the first paragraph, not the Miranda, but my handwritten first paragraph out loud to me so that I knew that he could, one, read my handwriting, and two, read, and he did that. Carl's sister testified that he had been illiterate all through their childhood, as well as how he had suffered a severe head injury when he was attacked by several men wielding metal tools. No evidence was presented at this time about his IQ or whether the brain trauma affected his ability to understand whether he was given his Miranda warnings or not. Ultimately, a Cook County Circuit Court judge named Marjorie Laws denied the motion to suppress Carl's confession. Judge Laws noted that she had not heard any evidence about Reed's IQ or how the brain injury, which occurred after he dropped out of school, had affected his abilities. The judge noted that he was living by himself away from his family in an assisted living facility, but she doesn't note that. But I don't have enough information concerning the defendant's ability to understand or not understand Miranda, and I don't have enough information to rebut the state's witnesses. So on December 5th, 2005, having spent more than four years in jail and facing the possibility of capital punishment, if he were to go to trial, Carl pleads guilty to first degree murder, and he is sentenced to 27 years in prison. In 2012, Carl submits an application to the Illinois Innocence Project a fellow inmate who knew Carl's case helps him prepare and write the application. In 2016, under a federal Bloodsworth DNA grant to work on guilty plea cases, the Innocence Project officially opens his case. At the time, his team consists of Lauren uh, Kaseberg, John Hanlon, and then attorney, Lauren Meierskopf-Muller, and she was the staff attorney for IIP at the time and she had been hired on under this Bloodsworth grant to work on DNA cases. In 2017, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office agreed to DNA testing, and a motion for the testing was granted. Modern DNA testing was done by Bodie mark on the hairs, on the two swabs of blood from Kim Van Vo's closet, two swabs of blood from a fish tank, a white towel that was on Van Vo's face, and the knife. The profiles that Bodhi was able to obtain excluded Carl. Most of them were from Kim Van Vo. On one side of the knife, Bodhi found a mixture of DNA from two individuals. One of them was Kim Van Bo, but the other could not be determined. The DNA profile from the closet swabs was consist- consistent with Kim the fish tank blood swabs turned up a mixture of two individuals. One was Kim and the other could not be determined on the stained and unstained areas of the towel. Bodie reported mixtures from two people. One was Kim and they drew no conclusion on the minor mixture profile. All right. So they're not finding Carl's DNA here and they're.
1: For the most part, they're finding a, uh Kim Van Vaux's
0: own DNA. Right. And they can't really make out other DNA at this point.
1: The DNA that they've uh, found that doesn't seem to be Kim Van Vaux's, they have been able to exclude the defendants uh, as being the contributor, right?
0: Yeah, it looks like they exclude him, but they're not able to... I can't tell if they can't figure out who it would match or if they just basically... Say it's not his, but it doesn't match anyone else you've asked us to compare it to.
1: Well, um, so there's a minor contributor, and it doesn't give a um, a good indication to me, like w- what they mean by that in this particular uh, summary. But uh, the. It looks like the minor contributor at least on the fish tank, like they couldn't determine who it was yeah and and then there was no concl- okay, yeah, so they couldn't determine who it was, and they therefore didn't make a conclusion uh but and and they don't go further into that, like detailing what's happening there, but um essentially, they had to have found something that didn't correlate with van Vo. But it wasn't enough to uh, lead to anyone else. That's a kind of a weird statement. I'm not sure that's exactly what they meant, but I that's think that
0: yeah, that's what it says in, in the documents here. And it looks like they pull some raw data that they really don't know what to do with it, so they ask for assistance.
1: They drew no conclusion from the minor profile that didn't match Van However, cyber genetics used an advanced software and they were able to confirm that the defendant was excluded.
0: Right. And that Kim was included in at least one of them. Correct. Uh, Go ahead. um,
1: But there's also, it appears to be an unknown, there's an unknown source that is not the defendant.
0: Or the victim. They find or it. Or the on, victim.
1: Well, right, because the the at that point the victim's DNA wouldn't be considered an unknown sample. Right.
0: Right. And that's actually found on the murder weapon. Correct. So in 2019, they take all this data and then they take the state police data from the pretrial testing and they send it over to a guy named Carl Reich. And Carl Reich works at uh and uh I don't want to call it a company because that's not really what it is, but I'll say an organization called independent forensics. He concluded that both Kim and Carl were excluded as contributors to one of the hairs in Kim's hand and one of the hair roots. Reich also excluded Carl as the minor contributor from the profile that Bodie wasn't sure what to do with. So, This is a secondary source where they're excluding Carl from the knife and from this white towel where they found this DNA mixture.
1: Right. And so in these types of cases, um, in the event that Reich had been unable to exclude Reed, right? Right. But unable to, to... match it specifically that still doesn't it it all it does is not exclude him and it doesn't really apply to this case because it's the opposite I just wanted to mention that because this is one of the places where people really get um confused that I've seen in jury trials where it says like like in this case it basically it could be just about anybody but Reed right Right. Because the specific areas that they're looking at, Reed does not have those in his known DNA profile. So there's absolutely no way that it could be him. If Reed had those areas, it would say that he couldn't be excluded, but not being excluded is not necessarily a match.
0: Right. I'll just point out, like, I'm saying this in just a few minutes while you're having some eggnog, but this is all unfolding between 2001 and where we are right now is 2019. So it all unfolds. You know, we've got a crime occurring in 2001. We're still sorting out the DNA in 2019. Now, this is good and bad. You've got multiple times that everyone's in agreement DNA should be tested 15 years after the crime, 10 years after the conviction. But slowly but surely, we're, we're getting more and more information from the DNA. It's not a quick process. It's not, you know, hour episode on CSI. 2019, the Chicago-based firm Erickson Oppenheimer joins the Innocence Project's team on Carl Reed's case. So when myers Mueller leaves the Illinois Innocence Project to work at the Exoneration Project because the grant was over. So she's basically over at the Chicago universe, uh, University of Chicago School of Law. The Exoneration Project and the uh, like the whole organization and their staff attorney, Carl Leonard, they come over to work with Erickson Oppenheimer on Carl Reed's case. On April 7th of 2020, Illinois governor J.B. Pritzker commutes Carl Reed's sentence to time served. And he gets released based on a compassionate release request, which is occurring during the COVID-19 pandemic. So based on, issues in the Illinois prisons and the fact that it appears that Carl Reed is innocent in March of 2022 after the Cook County state's attorney's office conviction integrity unit had declined to agree to vacate the conviction in 2020. And again, in 2021, this whole legal team behind Carl Reed files a post conviction petition. In addition to the DNA testing, the petition cites evidence that one of the detectives, Zuli, had been involved in numerous other false confession cases over the years. A list of cases tainted by Zuli's misconduct had grown to include exonerations and murder cases, including that of Lothario Boyd, and would come to include that of Lee Harris. Zuli was also part of the team of detectives that obtained the wrongful conviction of David Wright. The petition noted that Zulie had been criticized after Harris's conviction for his conduct in the investigation of the murders of seven people at a Brown's chicken restaurant in Palatine, Illinois. Zuli was part of a task force assembled to investigate the crime. He said an informant had named the killer who was never charged, but DNA evidence implicated two other men. When his informant was discredited, Zuli pushed back. He leaked information to the media, and he lied about having done so, resulting in his dismissal from that task force. The petition also noted that Zuli, who was in the Naval Reserve, had masterminded the torture of Muhammad Utslahi at Guantanamo Bay. The interrogation of Utslahi included sexual assaults, sensory deprivation, threats against family, beatings, and rendition. Now, Mohammed had been released in 2016 after 14 years in custody, and his purported confession had been deemed to be worthless. Mohammed provided an affidavit describing his treatment and said that he finally cracked when Zuli claimed that Muhammad's mother had been brought to Guantanamo Bay and implied that they were going to rape her. The petition also quoted the report of Dr. Jessica Pearson, who is a forensic clinical psychologist who examined Reed. She declared that based on all of Reed's psychological, mental and physical deficits, he was vulnerable to psychological coercion and giving an unreliable statement, which is something that we talked about right up front in this episode. Both of us sort of went down that path, even though we got there different ways. On May 26, 2023, The Cook County State's Attorney's Office agreed to Reed's conviction being vacated. The charge was then dismissed.
1: So this case brings up like a really interesting um, uh, side effect or uh, additional benefit of like the avalanche of DNA happening because uh, this exposed um, a an investigator who was using bad tactics, right? Yep. And um, I think we're going to see that uh, because in cases where people are coerced or threatened or whatever to implicate themselves or somebody else and it goes through the process and they're convicted... When it comes down to the DNA science... See, I would have expected in this case to have at least found some of Carl Reed's DNA.
0: I I think we would have had to have. Although, you know, the exclusions are enough for me. Um, But yeah, I think if he had done this, you would see his DNA... Honestly, I think if he had done this, it would have been a messier crime scene with more DNA. I...
1: Well, and so if you're going to find, uh, you know, if they hadn't found anybody's DNA, right? Yeah. That's one thing. Of course, they can find the victim's DNA because he's literally right there. But because there's DNA that he cannot be, that he is excluded as being, okay? How is it possible that DNA could be there when his isn't, right? If he was, in fact, the person who did this. Now... The doors to the apartment, both the outer door and the door that latched, uh, that went through to the shared bathroom, they were both locked from the inside. Correct. Okay. So, was there a window?
0: Uh,
1: What happened there?
0: I don't know. Somebody had a key. I'm guessing there. So, I I can't find anything else about this case. Except for the implication that it's potentially an employee.
1: Okay. Well, my impression, I, when they said latched, I thought that meant something like that couldn't be, uh, like it would have to be somebody inside. And of course, if there's nobody in there, it's either got to be a different exit point or a suicide. And of course that's not the point of what we're talking about, but It seems to me like uh, this started as a disaster. It went a really long time as a disaster. And then it ends as a disaster. But eventually, um, the man that didn't do it is set free and exonerated. Now, that does absolutely nothing to get justice for the victim, right? Kim Van Vo's murder is unsolved.
0: Correct. And honestly, it's not mentioned anywhere. That's one of the reasons we're bringing it up today. Like if you go looking for Kim Benbow in Chicago, Illinois, you find one entry for this related to Carl Reed. You actually have to hunt through the court documents to even find the victim's name. This is what I'll say about it. The bathrooms had the big heavy flip hotel locks where you could shove it open, but you can only shove it open about an inch. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So that's if what it's I was locked,
1: imagining.
0: that's between the the that's between the apartment and the bathroom, and it was locked.
1: Right. It was basically so just then, to keep the neighbor from being able to come into your apartment when they were in the bathroom.
0: And then the front door had a door handle lock and a deadbolt.
1: Okay, and so the that dead could be a key. Was,
0: the deadbolt was latched, correct?
1: Okay, so somebody had to have used a key to get out.
0: But but what what's killing me about this case, okay, they have all this evidence because they had a capital case and okay, they so have no solution to it.
1: The way that our justice system is panning out at this point, which that that murder happened in 01 and this guy was just, uh, Carl Reed was just exonerated in 2023, finally, now. So instead of... You know, using DNA evidence to um, procure accurate convictions, right? It's instead only being used to exonerate long-convicted innocent people because there's no, there's nothing happening here, like with the testing that's done there's nothing being done to find out who it was.
0: Yeah. And I think they, you know, normally I look at this and I go, do they have a suspect? Do they not have a suspect?
1: There's, there's only so many people it could be.
0: I think it's, I think they have a suspect. I think it's the guy with the car.
1: So, and I guess maybe it's not relevant to the summary of Carl Reed's exoneration. I guess that's an arguable point that it could be relevant but like i hope somebody tested the dna because literally you've got it right there
0: yeah he went through
1: all this trouble to put this other dude on trial and convict him and you know 19 uh well i guess
0: they didn't convict him he pleads it out but they uh, wanted to make it a capital case you're right
1: correct well okay yeah fine he he confessed to you know he, he read something he couldn't possibly have read. All this stuff's happening is just it's corrupt, right? Um, and but it was so much trouble to do all that, right?
0: Do you think that Carl didn't kill him?
1: I don't think Carl killed him. Do you think that Carl killed him?
0: I don't This is a weird one for me because I think I think it's unlikely Carl killed him. I I see how we get to this situation where Carl is the accused. I don't understand what happened with the car or how Ricardo Burns ends up uh, accusing Carl of giving him Kim's car. And I don't, you know, it's kind of a locked door mystery for me. And those are always interesting and difficult.
1: See, um, I stand by what I said about Carl's DNA being at the scene, if he was responsible for it. I feel like that is a vital clue that, Uh, But they would have found his
0: DNA or prints, yeah.
1: Well, they found – somebody's DNA is there.
0: I know. no, It's just
1: not Carl's, right? And so I think that that person would be relevant. Now, the reason that um, DeLong Reed said, oh, yeah, I saw Carl leaving with stuff, and then another neighbor said, oh, yeah, I saw him leaving with stuff, is because they were like, if you don't say this, you could be in trouble, right
0: oh uh, well
1: and then you've got ricardo burns um so he doesn't live at the building he's the one with the car correct there is a so a guy named lester garner indicated ricardo burns was looking for carl reed uh to talk to um to talk to him about the car, but see that just means that Lester Garner stole. A, I mean, I'm sorry, not Lester Garner. Uh, uh, Ricardo Burns stole the car. To me, it it's all explained away. Uh, Carl got the short end of the stick when they were in the huddle, and they were like, "Okay, we're gonna like you know, we got to make all this work." Which is why I'm saying they have. It could only be so many people, right? because you're talking about an assisted living facility, I mean, this was not some random person that came in, right? Right, right. Okay, so it can only be so many people. And in these types of situations, it's more than likely not the person that everybody's pointing at.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree with you, yeah.
1: And so while there are components that seem to show, like, these unbiased positions that like, oh yeah, he was taking stuff and you know, oh yeah, I was there to talk to him about the car. Like you have to, if that's clearly not the case, you have to start wondering, well, why were they saying that? Right. And so either they were being pressured or they had a reason that it was beneficial to them for them to be looking at Carl, right. Instead, instead of what was actually happening. And so, I don't know what all happened. Um, It seems to me like... uh, I I doubt stuff was really being taken out of the apartment because the guy was in there decomposing, right? I'm just saying. um, It seems like... They weren't
0: paying attention, basically.
1: How does somebody... How does somebody in an assisted living facility...
0: Some people uh, don't want to be bothered.
1: Okay, that's fine. I understand that. I get it. But... Uh to some extent, there's it, – it shouldn't happen that way, right? Like he was being ignored whether he wanted to be ignored or not, right? It, he never should have been in an advanced state of decomposition in, in an, an, assisted an assisted living, living facility, facility. Yeah. yes. Because I feel like I don't know what the protocol is. But I would say that, like, eyes on the person once a day is probably one of the mandatory things, depending on, like, how involved it is, right? Because you, you can have – now, these are apartments, and these guys, uh, DeLong Reed and Kim Ver shared a bathroom, so it's, it's that clue. Um, there are some, like, assisted living communities that, you know, people have their own houses, and I doubt in those situations – I, I think it's a matter of just the specific facility, but in this case, I don't know how long it takes for a body to be decomposing in summer of in uh, in Chicago, in Illinois.
0: Yeah, uh, July. It'd be pretty quick. It'd be pretty warm.
1: Well, I don't know if they had air,
0: right? Well, yeah, I'm just saying if if, if you've got the air set high uh, off, then yeah, it could be pretty quick.
1: Right, so maybe it's a non issue, right, but it so there's only so many people this could be uh that are responsible for it. They settled on Carl Reed, he confessed, and it's interesting that, like the one piece of evidence they were like, "Well, he confessed, we don't have to test it. It ends up having most likely the perpetrator's blood on it or DNA on it, otherwise, right. And I also wondered where that was the knife just without a handle or like did the handle break off?
0: We don't know. It's not given to us in the course of with this case, what we have, we have a bunch of motions and then post conviction motions. We don't have actual trial testimony because after he goes through the competency and the suppression hearings, He basically pleads out so there's no trial record where I can go through it line by line and make an informed opinion.
1: Right. He was pressured into taking the plea because he was afraid he was going to be put to death.
0: Yeah. I think that happens quite a bit, actually. Uh, But every
1: single person, like, I have a feeling, it doesn't say, I have a feeling he was targeted specifically because it does not take an expert witness on the stand to indicate somebody has a 50-ish IQ. Yeah. Okay, and when you see that and you know that, whether it's just like your own confirmation bias or if they actually believed he was responsible, I don't know what it is. But I feel like that's the easiest target to hit. As far as uh, concoct, I mean, they concocted a story.
0: Yeah, they really did. And in this case, if you go, um, if you go read about the the '90s uh, torture investigations in Chicago, this guy Richard Julie is like right in the middle of it. Uh, he like, uh, there's actually at one point, there's a, a reveal that there's an enhanced interrogation facility in Chicago. It's run Home and Square. I think it's run out of an old Sears. And this guy was right in the middle of all of that. Um, the Richard Zuli, the the detective here. Um, you you can read about him online. I'm, I'm just glad that that Carl Reed is out. I will say that uh, the the DNA here was not what I expected. I was hoping it would lead us to you know a suspect in all of this. Uh, like directly, like we would have a name that we. could, um, I'm hoping, since uh, you know the Cook County State's Attorney in summer of 2023 basically said I'm getting rid of this case, that maybe they will, uh, or you know, I you know I haven't seen a lot out of their conviction integrity unit yet, but this would be an ideal case for the conviction integrity unit to gather up all the files. And hand it back to Cook County State's Attorney's Office and go, hey, guys, here's one for you. Send this back out to Cyber Genetics, who did the testing in 2018, since they already have all the profiles and they've done the computer analysis on it. And have them share it with their investigative genealogist person. And there you go. You can solve this case.
1: I I think so, and I think the name of the person is probably somewhere in that case file because it's somebody they talked to, without question.
0: Yeah, like whoever gave Schmickardo Schmerns the car, you know, or him himself, like that's the guy.
1: Right? Yeah, because otherwise, why'd they have the car, and why'd they say Carl gave it to him? Right?
0: Yeah. So Carl's going to be home for the holidays. He's actually been home for a couple of holidays now. Um, And that's exciting.
1: But he has this year uh, will be the first time that he's home for the holidays having his uh, conviction vacated and the charge dismissed.
0: Yep. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by Labradicreations.com. You can check them out at labbrodycreations.com and you can still use the code crimexs for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at truecrimexs, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 5593. You can also reach us at gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.truecrime excess.com. We'll see you next time. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CrimeXS at Labradicreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors, If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E, excess. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and TRUECRIMEXS will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural, whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee, but let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, at uh, Laird, will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy, athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy, it's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster, you can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best, I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code True Crime Access, you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is True Crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same New Era ball caps. Uh, We love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime You can also use the code True at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code truecrimexs.